if I had to say why healthcare data is different and, and you know, what it is, it's, it's because it has this unique intimacy with your body. And you know, moreover, healthcare data is some of the only data that we have that is not autobiographical, but it's biographical. And you can almost see any information in some way as health information if you, if you dig down into it enough. There's an increasingly expansive view that not only are your health records health data, but all of your data is health data in some sense or not. Voices of the Data Economy, a podcast supported by Ocean Protocol Foundation. We bring to you the voices shaping the data economy and challenging it at the same time. We talk about breaking down data silos and equalizing access to data for all. Welcome to this episode. I'm Nima. Uh, this episode is going to be with Robert Miller from Consensus Health, and we're going to discuss all things healthcare and data. Thanks to Ocean Protocol for supporting the podcast, as always. And uh, now we go to Robert. Hi, Robert. How's it going? Hey, Nima. It's going really well. I'm really excited to be here. I'm a big fan of your podcast, your Twitter, and uh, the work that you're doing over at Ocean Protocol. Thank you. Thank you. So I wanted to start with uh, just telling the, our audience first that you have your newsletter. So we thought we'd do this podcast a little bit differently. And, you know, the, the podcast is, has the word data in it. So we thought we'd do it in a data-driven way. So what we thought was uh, we'll find the most clicked uh, articles from Robert's uh, newsletter. We'll definitely share the link in the podcast notes. But before we start with that, just so you know, uh, first, Robert, I want to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself, your story, and what got you excited about healthcare data. Yeah, and you know, for some context for your listeners, I run a, a weekly newsletter on all things related to blockchain, healthcare, data, zero-knowledge proofs, Web3, etc. And I also post regular essays that dive deeply into these topics and, and try to tease out some um, some really interesting concepts and uh, give people a sense of the trends of today. So you can find that at bert.substack.com. And for a background on myself, you know, I consider myself an internet native, as I think you would too, Nima. So I've always been uh, close to the internet, tinkering around, building things, programming. And that led me to finding my way to the city of London, where I worked as a quantitative analyst at a, at a, a family office hedge fund, where I built and operationalized Forex algorithms to trade on the, the foreign exchange market. And at, at the time, there I think it was late 2016, early 2017, there was a lot of open interest in the crypto markets. And it was sort of when a lot of the dreams that people had had uh, about crypto and, and blockchain were being amplified and, and it seemed like they were being realized at, at the time. And I had grown up in and around healthcare in Rochester, Minnesota, which is home to the Mayo Clinic, which is the world's top hospital, according to a, a number of different lists. And I had interned at the Mayo Clinic, done, done a bunch of work in healthcare, and I wanted to move away from algorithmic trading because I didn't find it too meaningful. Um, and there was so much interest and so much promise in the, the crypto space that I decided that I would quit my job as, as a algorithmic trader. And I joined a little healthcare startup called Medical Chain, which was trying to build blockchain-enabled electronic health records to give people back control of, of their data. Uh, I worked as the director of business development there for a year doing some really interesting stuff. Um, I was a part of the deal that Medical Chain signed with the Mayo Clinic before I ended up starting my own startup called Honeycomb Health, where we made disease-specific health records for patients with rare diseases to help them coordinate their care and be, be healthy people, as well as connecting them to researchers that could use that data to accelerate new cures and treatments. So I exited that business in January of 2019 when I had the chance to join Consensus Health under the leadership of um, Heather Flannery. At, at the time, it was just Heather and, and I. We were a two-person team, so small internal team in Consensus Health. And 
you know, we've since then grown that to a um, independent entity. We, we spun out of consensus and we have a team of 20 people now tackling a diverse set of opportunities around healthcare and building some really interesting products that, you know, I think we can dive into why I think that uh, they saw some, some big problems in healthcare data today, uh, particularly around federated learning and, and uh, privacy-preserving technologies. So that, that's a little bit about my background and the kind of things that I'm doing. Thank you. So we should definitely also talk about Consensus Health and what you guys are doing there. But um, before we start talking about any specific news articles and things that we found from your uh, newsletter, I wanted to ask you to tell us and our audience a little bit about um, healthcare data and like what, what, what is unique about uh, health data in general? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that people intuitively have a sense that healthcare data is different and it's kind of difficult to tease out why that is. But if I had to say why healthcare data is different and, and you know, what it is, it's because it has this unique intimacy with your body and people experience violations of their healthcare data in, in the same way that they might experience a a violation of their body and you know moreover healthcare data is some of the only data that we have that is not autobiographical but it's biographical and what i mean by that is in other contexts it is usually you that is generating data right you write a social media post you're the person that authors that or you you, you go on amazon you search for a book and you took an action that generated some information. But in the context of healthcare, at least traditional context, it is a physician actually that is taking down notes. And it is through their lens of the world of, of your actions, their interpretations that generate your healthcare information. And so even though it's a super sensitive intimate information about you, it's always generated through the lens of another person. It's biographical, not autobiographical. Um, and that generates all sorts of interesting, you know, interesting problems from it. And your health information, you know, traditionally people think of it as their medical records, their the kind of information that gets taken down in a physician's office or maybe an insurance company. But you can almost see any information in some way as health information if you, if you dig down into it enough. So it, it, it's not just your CT scan, but it you might be able to use somebody's social media activity and their text messages to get a proxy of how social they're feeling. And, and you know, that, that could be an indicator of um, how mentally well they are or not. There, there's an increasingly expansive view that not only is your, are your health records health data, but all of your data is health data in some sense or not. Well, no. That leads me to ask uh, this question. So it, it, it's not um, it's not just that the data is biographical and not autobiographical. It's also that the, the way uh, health data is recorded right now, despite being so intimately about you, it's almost always not controlled or owned by you, right? And and that's one of the like trickiest uh, questions generally in this like new space of data economy and economics of data um, that is a especially a thorny problem with uh, health data. So um, maybe now is a good time to um, start exploring the space of uh, healthcare data and blockchain. Um, I was thinking about it and I thought there are four kind of sub uh, groups of problems that we need to solve for, you know, all our visions of open health data to become a reality. And so one of them is identity or sovereign identity. And the second one is data storage. Um, third one is data access control and permissioning. That's where Ocean is relevant. And then last one, what we were just talking about is data sovereignty and, you know, the economics and who owns the data. So should we start with the first one? Maybe uh, just tell us a little bit about, you know, top of mind, what's the state of the art on self-sovereign identity? Well, self-sovereign identity in healthcare doesn't exist 
to die. There are a number of <laughs> certainly <laughs> shit. <laughs> oh no, and it's even worse than that, Nima. I don't think that identity really exists in healthcare to die the, the way that it does in other um, other domains. So it, wow, it, health data is very unstandardized. It's, it's getting better, but. Two hospitals, if you were to walk in and go up to the desk and sign in at two different hospitals, they will probably record your identity in two different ways. So one of them may say, you know, your, your birthday is um, May 10th, 2001, and record that with the full word May, M-A-Y, 8th. And the other may say, you know, your birthday is May 10th, 1991, and use that only with numbers. And, you know, someone may misspell your name or, or uh, you know, all these little quirks that mean that it's very difficult to take a person's identity in one context and in, in one part of the healthcare system and match it to a person's identity in a different context um, because there aren't standardized ways of, of doing this. And so you not only wow. do we not have self-sovereign identity, <laughs> <Okay. laughs> we just don't have a good sense Anything. of people's identity at all in healthcare okay okay but but then like if if we don't even have such a basic building block is there any hope for data sovereignty because like you cannot have sovereignty over your data if we don't even know if it's your data or not right yeah precisely it, it's like a very important problem that, that needs to be solved in order for us to have data sovereignty and you know th there are there, there's there's hope so we're getting better all the time at standardizing data and you know, people are, are slowly converging on some standards. Um, machine learning algorithms are, are getting better at matching people's identities or like learning the sort of quirks in, in healthcare patient identity. And then the, reversing uh, anonymized data. Uh, this too. <laughs> we, we would hope that that's used for things like identity matching and, and um, not more nefarious things. And the reason why there um, is no national standard patient identity in the United States, like there is in other places, is uh, of a, a long-standing worry on part of our, our lawmakers that a national patient identity would um, lead the United States to a socialized healthcare system. And so there's uh, there's a law in place that says that the federal government cannot fund a national patient identifier. And as recent as I think it was last year, there was um, a part of a law, uh, some amendment in a law um, that passed the House that revoked this and said that the federal government could now fund, fund research into a national patient identifier, which, which is good progress. But it sounds crazy. Like, uh, <laughs> as a person who lives in Germany, I, I've never had to even take out my wallet uh and like i've been living here for 10 years and enjoying the fruits of socialism <laughs> socialized healthcare so um well i guess like that that's it for uh, uh the podcast you know <laughs> <laughs> we're done <laughs> there's there's nothing to discuss <laughs> yeah that's there, that, all there is in health data right there <laughs> <laughs> okay so, um, well, I mean, does it even make sense to discuss about data access control and permissioning? I, I mean, are there any uh, use cases of healthcare data where uh, the actual owners of data are uh, within the loop and as a decision maker in the consortium? Um, you know, there are, there are pockets here or there. And... I do have optimism for the future. Maybe this is a good place to start. I am optimistic that things will get better and that there's real change on the horizon in health data. Although I know people have been saying that <laughs> for like three decades. Um, but there, there are some regulatory changes um, in place, like the, offer, the ONC, which is a regulatory agency in the United States with purview over health IT, is, has recently finalized regulations that are going to penalize people when they do not um, share patient records if the patient has uh, asked them to. 
So there's disincentives for providers in the United States to share patient information because that makes it um, less, uh, because that would uh, create less friction of moving to a different hospital. And as a hospital, you want people to get care at your hospital, not at a different hospital, so you can capture that revenue, right? So there's this disincentive to share people's health information. But in, in, the, in the law, you are supposed to do with um, a patient's health records what they say. So if you say, transfer my health records to this place, in theory, folks should do that. In practice, this hasn't worked very well. Um, and there's only been you know, carrots. We've only ever given people incentives to share health data, but, but never penalize them if they don't. And last year, uh, actually in January of this year, uh, a regulatory agency in the United States finalized regulations that will start penalizing people if they do not share patients' records uh, after they have asked them to. And in, in addition, you need to open up APIs uh, that will easily give access to patient data with the patient's relevant credentials, which is to say, I think that there will be more meaningful control and patient mediation of their health data to lead into the kind of opportunities that you were asking about, um, which I can talk about given that, that context too. Well, that, that, that sounds quite optimistic. And, and I was thinking if uh, there's a brave, most likely San Francisco Bay Area based healthcare data startup, they could market aggressively to uh, end users, patients, and and then get uh, proper permission from them, and then act as like an aggregator. Uh, if if these APIs and like even like manual requests by email, if if there's any kind of like um, uh, data portability in place, um, well, that's interesting. And then uh, I guess now it's also a good time to start talking a little bit about. Um, federated learning um, because it does uh, rely it's it's mostly relevant for like population level data so not individual data but by the way uh, this comes a little bit like uh, <laughs> we already talked about federated learning but we didn't uh, explain what it is I, probably some of our audience members are already familiar but for those who are uninitiated in federated learning and privacy preserving machine learning, maybe you could give us like a, a federated learning 101 quickly. So federated learning is a way of training machine learning algorithms in a collaborative and privacy preserving manner. It allows for a network of participants to train an algorithm without any individual participant needing to share their data. And in a traditional machine learning context, you send data to a centralized repository, and in that centralized repository, you train an algorithm. But in federated learning, you send the algorithm to the data stored in its home location. And participants in the network, after they receive the algorithm, improve it on their local data, which creates an updated, better algorithm, before passing it on to the next participant in the federated learning network. And it's, it's only this updated algorithm and not the underlying data, which is shared. And so this is the way in which in a federated learning network, you can have you know, 30 parties training the same algorithm or, or a million parties even at scale without anybody sharing their underlying information. It's a, a way of training a, a decentralized AI. And in all likelihood, you've benefited from and contributed to a federated learning network without ever knowing it. So federated learning originated from a team at Google who um, created it as a way of improving typing suggestions on your device without people having to give up their privacy. Uh, and, and so the basic way that it works is that uh, you have an algorithm on your phone from Google and this algorithm updates based off of what you're typing. Um, so it improves the algorithm, improves its predictions based off the way that you type. In those improvements, on the autofill um, or the texting predict algorithm are aggregated together by Google, which form the basis of a new algorithm that is then distributed to your phone 
um, the way that you type improves it a little bit, those improvements then get aggregated again and, and so forth. And so this, this lets you preserve individuals' privacies. Your texts are never shared, only the improvements in the algorithm. Autocorrect, um, you know, is it's pretty nice and it's instantaneous since it's being done on your phone. And, um, and this type of technology can be used in, in other contexts as well, like enterprise health data settings. Thank you, Robert. But still, um, I, I'm curious to know if, I mean, that's also what you guys are working on. If there are any uh, actual use cases running right now, let's say across like a consortium of like 10 hospitals uh, that are sharing data compliantly and getting actual results. Yeah, there are, there are a number of, I'm super excited by federated learning. And I, I think it, it's both applicable to your point for individuals and population level in, insight. Um, we, we can talk about those different use cases, but right now federated learning in a healthcare context is only being used by enterprises. And I think that there is about 10 different federated learning networks that are running on health data today. With like varying levels of sophistication and insight into how they're doing. But, you know, to take one that I'm excited about, Penn Medicine and Intel Labs stood up a federated learning network of 29 different organizations across seven different countries to train AI algorithms to identify brain tumors. And the amazing thing about that is, you know, number one, 29 organizations collaborating on an algorithm is, uh, is, um, is a lot of data and, and a lot of organizations that I don't think you could have gotten together without using federated learning because in order to, to contribute to the algorithm, you don't need to share your patient data with any other organization. And so maybe you could stand up like a three-party AI algorithm in a centralized way but using this decentralized way of training an AI algorithm, you could get 29 organizations, you know, exponentially more, um, more data and more value collaborating on an algorithm. And number two, they were able to do this across seven different countries and in countries that have pretty strict data localization laws. And so I, I think Germany actually has strict data localization laws where you can't take health data outside of the borders of Germany or maybe the EU, I'm, I'm not sure, but I know that there is extreme difficulty in moving health data internationally, probably for good reasons, to be frank. But using federated learning, you don't ever have to move data beyond countries' borders in order to collaborate with other organizations. And um, this particular consortium of Federated, uh, this particular federated learning consortium of 29 different organizations has people in North America and Latin America and Europe. And so I'm, I'm super excited by this global um, way that you can collaborate and train AI algorithms in a compliant way that ends up, you know, protecting people's privacy. So, so that's a very concrete thing that's happening today and, and a good use case for federated learning. So I wanted to just point out this uh, thing quickly that federated learning does not uh, automatically equate privacy, right? So there are additional techniques that have to be used for the federated learning system to uh, respect uh, privacy and data leak and all of that, correct? Right. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, the, the I think it's important to remember that algorithms are trained on, on data, of course, people know that, um, but by trying to fit an algorithm to some underlying data, it may um, remember that data too well, so to speak. And it's possible in some contexts to take an algorithm and reverse engineer it to yield some of the data that was used to train that algorithm, which is obviously a bad thing if you're training on sensitive information. And there are uh, a number of different techniques that people use to try and alleviate this and like differential privacy, like consensus health, we use um, trusted execution environments. So, uh, so there are a number of different things that you can do to try and mediate this uh, this worry that you will take an algorithm and come back to the sensitive data. But you know, you're totally right that in and of itself, federated learning doesn't guarantee privacy. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, our episode one could be interesting for listeners. If you find our podcast through this episode, uh, we talk more about privacy preserving machine learning on our first episode with Andrew from Open Mind. And then another issue that I've discussed with experts in federated learning, I think they were also working on healthcare use cases. It was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's called like, um, data pollution or model pollution. So it, let's say one of the participants, maybe more than one of the participants in the uh, federated learning system or network, they're uh, contributing data that is maybe in an implicit way making the model worse. Uh, but like, are, are, is this actually a problem? And how are you guys maybe at Consensus Health looking at this? Yeah. I it is a problem, and um, it's a problem that I don't think is deliberate a lot of the time, and it gets at the complexity and uh, heterogeneous nature of healthcare. So in, you may have a federated learning network, let's just take uh, a network of two hospitals, and maybe the hospitals are training on um, some set of imaging that's done, right? CT scans or, or something like that. But these two hospitals exist in very different contexts. You know, let's say one is in Germany, one is in the United States. Our health systems are very different. Our, uh, the, the people that will go to the hospital in the United States demographically will be different. The people that are going in Germany are different. There are probably different ways that people are, are shepherded into our health system and you know maybe the criteria in america for getting imaging done is different from the criteria in germany so there's all this context around the health data and the way that it was generated that is really important and if you aren't mindful of that and, and you just assume that you know one type of health data is the same as uh Another, that same type of health data, but in a totally different context. And these are apples to apples. If you make that assumption, you may end up uh, having model pollution, like what you're saying. So uh, I think that there's this sort of not deliberate thing that could happen just by people not being mindful of how heterogeneous healthcare is in general. And then there's the broader question of incentives in federated learning networks and you know, how you incentivize people to do good things and how you, um, you know, decentivize them to do bad things, like deliberately pollute a model or, um, or try to uh, take the algorithm and, and derive sensitive data from it. And you know, we, in dealing with these problems, we try to focus on areas where we know that there's some standardization and we're trying to design token-based incentives um, to give people the ability to collaborate and to incentivize people to make the best contributions possible. But it, it, it's a pretty difficult problem to do so. Um, and that is the only way in which we are really going to be able to stand up these federated learning networks at scale as well, is if we can solve these problems of how do you incentivize people to contribute the most possible and how do you um, penalize bad actors that pollute the model or, or do other things in your ecosystem that, that you don't like? And today, there are no federated learning networks that have solved this problem. And I think that's why um, you don't see massive scale federated learning networks in healthcare as well. If you join a federated learning network, then your contributions are, are sort of weighted the same as every other party within a federated learning network. And so even if you bring the highest quality, best data, you, know, you have the most amount of data, you are considered equal to your peers, even though that may not necessarily be the case. And that means that there's always going to be a cap on federated learning networks until we can figure out a way to give people outsized benefits for making outsized contributions. Um, and so we're, 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 we're just now it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I, I've been really wanting since like last year, 
mid 2019 to get together a group of people who are passionate and also knowledgeable about healthcare data, uh, especially maybe DNA data and uh, or genetic data, and also people from the crypto space, um, you know, the ones that are actively developing DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, to create maybe the first uh, health data uh, DAO or data DAO. But it's, uh, it's been challenging. And one of the issues is how do you uh, figure out the incentives part? Because like the, it, at least for, for now, it's not so easy to automate this like quality control part of the data that you're contributing. It, it would probably still need to rely on trust. Do you say, uh, I'm, let's say, Johns Hopkins University and, you know, we're credible, give us this many shares of the DAO and we will promise to contribute only good data. Maybe you only check samples from time to time. But this doesn't really scale. It like it, like the DAO part is kind of gimmicky. It's not really a DAO. So, um, what, what do you think about this idea? Actually, I mean, I think that it's a good idea, but it, like what you what you're saying, it's really hard to operationalize. And um, there are yeah, there are all sorts of problems with making that happen. I mean, to take one for example if the DAO collectively votes in order to take some action, like to sell their DNA data and a couple of members that are a part of it don't want to do that. You just let them, you know, rage quit essentially. And then the same with that you can from Moloch DAO, you know, that seems like you would never reach any sort of scale or, or not like the, um, you know, not in the true sense of a, of a DAO in that way, if everybody can always pull out, uh, of any individual action that the DAO votes to take. But, you know, if that's not the case, then how do you respect people's sovereignty and, and privacy? Not sure. Yeah, I, I think the one way to do it is to define a very, very narrow scope for the data that can be contributed. So uh, we could have uh, automated tools for data quality control. I, I, I'm pretty sure there are enterprise tools for checking like data quality, if the data is the right format and things like that. You, I mean, it's quite easy. You could do like a Python script. It has this many rows and columns and the range of the data that's provided in each of the cells is between this and this value. So that, that part is easy, but I think um, then the next challenge is, do we just like YOLO this and fuck regulations or uh, like what I was thinking about was to just go to one of these subreddits that are into body hacking and ask them if they are into, uh, they're interested in sharing their Fitbit data. Like, you know, like that's pretty standard. Yeah. I mean, wearables are a good place to start because that's mm -hmm. going to be high quality data that, you know, to your point is standardized. Um, and generally people have access to their wearable data. Like I have an Uro ring and, I have access to that data and I've been playing around with it. So that, that, that could be an interesting place to start. But on the other hand, there's not it, comparatively wearables data will be less valuable than something like your genomic information. Although, you know, maybe a use case for that, um, for wearables data is trying to see whether you can detect COVID-19 infection early. So most wearables will take your heart rate some of them, like the Euro ring that I have, will take your body temperature. And so if you get enough people feeding their data into you know, an algorithm, maybe you can, um, you can detect when people have an infection. And you know, maybe that's COVID-19, maybe it's not. That's very interesting. And like, imagine one of these like, uh, uh, state-level or country-level uh, COVID uh, contact tracing apps. It could even get people points and like Amazon... Uh, gift cards, if, if they share enough data. So it, it doesn't necessarily need to even have to be uh, like cash or dollar, just any kind of cryptocurrency as rewards. Um, talking about um, COVID, I read on your um, newsletter, it was like, I think the latest uh, version, from, like from yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, HHS.gov, which is health and human services in the U.S., they're, they announced they're going to be using uh, a blockchain uh, for COVID data. 
can you tell us a little bit about uh, for non-US audience what or what HHS does and also specifically about you know this uh, uh, project at uh, this organization? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm happy to do so. So the HHS is the United States Department of Health and Human Services. And an analogy um, for folks who are living in other places may be like a ministry of health. So the HHS has purview over um, a lot of stuff within healthcare in the United States. It has, I think, 11 different agencies, offices under it. So it um, you know, the FDA sits under the HHS, uh, which is the Food and Drug Administration within the United States that governs pharmaceuticals and medical devices. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention sits under the HHS. Um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, which pays for, for much of healthcare within the United States. So it's, it's this sprawling agency within the United States that has. Um, a lot of influence and control over how healthcare is, is organized and delivered in the United States. And, you know, there's been controversy in the United States over the way that the federal government has been tracking COVID-19 data. Um, and some people are, are worried because uh, the data isn't the right quality or it's not updated that much. And on, on a regular interval, or at least not as fast as people would want. Um, and historically, the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, has played this role of aggregating um, information that's relevant to public health about pandemics, and in particular, the COVID-19 pandemic. And then there are, there are tables on their websites and graphs that like you can dig into and see for example, what the um, rate of hospitalization for COVID-19 is within a particular state, right? But two weeks ago, the federal government suddenly, like on a dime, changed the way that data would be reported. Uh, and in particular, hospitals now need to report all these statistics around COVID-19 directly to the HHS instead of the Center for Disease Control, the CDC. So this, this um, public health data reporting function is being taken out of the hands of the CDC, which normally has purview over these kind of things in public health, and it's being put into the HHS. And um, this, this was met with a lot of alarm and skepticism from lawmakers, pundits, the public who were worried about political appointees politicizing the data or like covering things up. So, so that's the context in which this uh, new project from the HHS has been announced. Uh, and it was announced by Jose Arrieta, which is the chief information officer of the HHS. He's, he's one step down from the secretary, so a very senior person. And um, this is a, a really big deal because the HHS has announced that this database, which is probably the single system, uh, data system that is under the most scrutiny in the entire U.S. federal government right now. I mean, a lot of pundits, a lot of people are talking about this. And this system is using blockchain technology to authenticate the data which is in it to make sure that it, nobody has tampered with it unduly, that um, the same data that's being sent to the HHS is the same data that is displayed and, and et cetera. And so it's, I think, this watershed moment uh, for blockchain technology uh, in general, because the at a high level, the U.S. federal government is is using it in a, an important project in in healthcare specifically, because uh, this is C level in the HHS. It's super important. And this, so that, that's a little bit of context. We can dive into any of that. I mean, uh, first of all, that's great to hear at at first sight or hearing. Uh, but uh, what I'm curious about is. Are they uh, using a public blockchain or their own blockchain? And could it be that they're, they're saying we're using blockchain just to, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, use this, this stamp of approval of blockchain in a way that 
maybe it's that their blockchain is not a public blockchain and it won't really have the same level of you know decentralized consensus that we have for uh public blockchains yeah you know nima it's hard to say today i was disappointed that there weren't more details on the kind of blockchain that they are using and, and how it's set up because you know you and i know that this is integral to a blockchain solution you know you can't trust something on a blockchain without knowing who the nodes are um, and none of those details are available today all we know is that they're using a blockchain which is quote unquote similar to those supported by the hyperledger organization and companies such as ibm as opposed to the bitcoin or ethereum blockchains so we we know that it's not bitcoin or ethereum we they say that it's similar to a hyperledger project which is weird because i would think that if it was a hyperledger project they would just say that they've said that in other other contexts too i'm actually quite confused as to what exactly it is that they're using um but Later on in this, this interview that the HHS um, person with purview over this gave, he says something to the, to the effect of the blockchain that the HHS uses is, is not the blockchain of quote unquote anarchists and disruptors, which uh, I'm like. Which is really stupid because uh, blockchain that doesn't have politics or religion <laughs> it's, it's just i mean people use it for whatever they use it's just the security level yeah i read that and i was like wow i'm an anarchist <laughs> disruptor <laughs> it's like i was just playing around with DeFi. like i didn't know that i was an anarchist or anything it's like where well why is that the label out of, out of everything you i at least you could understand where they're coming from if they said something like you know, we don't use the same blockchain that's used to finance terrorism, something like that. But anarchists and disruptors, like, what a weird way to dismiss of public blockchains. And, and so, they, 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 so we don't know what they're using, but there was this comment about anarchists and disruptors that, you know, is, is a pretty strong condemnation of public blockchains. And without more details on what they're doing, I don't think that this adds any legitimacy to um, their database. Like if we don't know who the nodes are, if uh, it turns out that the nodes are like the White House um, and the HHS, for example, then, then that's not valuable at all and almost seems like a play to, to spur up legitimacy. But that being said, the caveat is, is I know a bunch of people within the HHS that I, I think are you know good people trying to solve big problems in the healthcare industry. And, and I'm, I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, but the the HHS does have a very high bar that they need to to meet up um, in order for me to really think that the solution is adding value and I should trust it more because of their blockchain. And they're never going to reach that bar unless they give us more information on what the solution is, who are the nodes, the technology they're using, and that's just not there today. I I I would say it's it's a very good uh, launchpad for like. Just, just to increase awareness around blockchain technology, and then uh, one step, you know, after this, maybe we could uh, educate them that the te- this technology is unique in the way that you cannot just, you know, if you if you download a copy of Windows or any operating system, it's as good as any other copy, right? But if you download the entire Bitcoin or you fork it, Bitcoin source code that doesn't magically give you the same benefits of, of Bitcoin, like the, the, the meme part and the uh, collective, you know, uh, ha- ha- mining power and hashing power. That, that's, that's really what makes Bitcoin and Ethereum as public networks unique. But on the other hand, I was thinking about maybe this concept that we could memeify and popularize. Uh, you, you don't always need uh, Bitcoin level decentralization and security for everything. So maybe we could think about a minimum viable level of decentralization. And it, this could be, in, in this case for HHS, it could be that they have uh, two-third of the nodes just independent research groups who are nonpartisan, and 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 they maybe only have uh, 50 nodes. And that, that that's already uh, great because we could then uh ask the 
let's say non-governmental nodes to do interesting things like uh, share, let's say their logs uh, or like uh, share a hash of their logs uh, of like, you know, the edits to the ledger on a public blockchain. So that, that already could be interesting, right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, you don't need to put everything on a public blockchain, but you can't have the HHS be the only node. And to your point, the yeah. middle ground is, is you know a private network with a bunch of um, non-governmental agencies. Yeah, you know, I, I think that if the, the HHS is serious about decentralizing, of um, you know giving up control of this ledger, they should go to the New York Times and Johns Hopkins and ask mm-hmm. them to run nodes too. Like if you really want wow. to, uh, if you really want people to believe that you haven't tampered with this data, let the New York Times run a node, and let um, uh, let a, a trusted public health authority like Johns Hopkins run a node as, as well. Um, although I don't <laughs> expect them to let the New York Times run a node anytime soon. Yeah, we should tweet that. We can we can just go find everyone who working on blockchain at HHS and just like, you know, DDoS their Twitter account and maybe uh, at least they'll consider this. Um, Robert, so um, as an anarchist, what are you looking forward to (laughs) in the blockchain space generally? (laughs) Uh, uh, Any closing thoughts for for our listeners? It's a good question. Let me think for a second. What am I looking forward to? No, it cannot be yield farming. <laughs> that that that's definitely a bubble. It's like it just um, yeah. looks like the 2017 bubble. I'm I'm looking forward to uh, YFI. Is what I'm looking forward. Yeah. To. I, uh, Yiffy, I don't I don't know how you pronounce that. Yeah, that's that's a part of the meme, and like no no one knows how to pronounce it. Yiffy. <laughs> you know, I, I think that um, what I'm looking forward to is this next chapter that i think we're entering into right it, it seems like there's a, a palpable level of interest in the blockchain space generally and in healthcare specifically and we are starting at, at uh, in, in the healthcare context we're starting to have a um, a level of sophistication i think with deployments and uses we understand where blockchain has value and where it doesn't. And there, there are like repeatable patterns that you can see across different use cases. And generally, when that happens in a very new industry, you are right at the beginning of an exponential curve. And, and so I'm, I'm really excited that we have um, this level of interest, excitement, and like this, this maturity that uh, seems to me to be letting us would be the start of something really good in a, in a mature and exciting industry with a lot of value and hopefully we solve some big problems in healthcare. And, you know, to your point before, I think that it's easy to dismiss things like uh, yield farming and, and other strange you know, crypto mechanisms, but I keep a pretty close eye on these things um, in part because of my days as an algorithmic trader but also because I think that it's these strange mechanisms that seem like they are Ponzi's, they seem like little little games, which may end up having insights that let us solve larger incentive problems. And in particular, I'm really interested in solving this problem of getting parties to collaboratively train algorithms we have this technology federated learning which lets us do this in a privacy preserving way um, as, as long as you're careful about it but we haven't figured out this this other part of how you distribute value fairly how you uh, pay people how you incentivize them to contribute their data to a system and if i were to guess the answer to that will probably come out of some experiment that happens that looks something like yield farming or, or, or another weird crypto thing that happens. And, and so I'm actually very excited to see all these strange little things popping up here or there. Because I, I think that they will help us unlock um, collaboration at, at, at scale for federated learning. And that's something that I'm working on. And if any of your, uh, your listeners are interested in that problem too, feel free to reach out to me.
Wow, that, that was a great arc, kind of uh, coming back to the reality of the crypto market, which is, you know, it's basically uh, 24-7, 365 experimentation with real money. I mean, define real, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's money that you could use to buy a stake, but then you use to stake on all kinds of crazy new experiments that uh, promise you more yield for your money. And and yeah, I agree. It's it's uh, it, it could be. Uh, I'm also really curious about uh, using DAOs in this context. So I guess like DeFi mechanism and DAOs, they could come together and and save us from the tyranny, tyranny of centralized uh, healthcare systems. Um, yeah, uh, That's last the dream, thing, Robert, uh -huh. it's a dream. Yeah. So, uh, could you be kind enough to share your Twitter handle with us or anything else? Maybe consensus health, uh, for, for our listeners to follow you and the project you're involved with. Sure. Yeah. Um, my Twitter handle is Bert C Miller, B E R T C M I L L E R. Um, you can also find me at bertcmiller.com and um, I work for Consensus Health, which is consensus with a Y, uh, health. That's at Consensus Health on, on Twitter as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, yeah. and uh, to your point, Nima, I'm, I'm interested in standing up a, maybe a discussion group or a roundtable. I don't know what, what you would call it, full of mm -hmm. these people who are interested in um, both healthcare and, and crypto. So I'm setting up this small group of people. And if oh. any of your listeners want to join on and, and uh, you know have a have a great discussion with us on on these topics, then feel free to reach out. Uh, where are you doing this? Is this a Telegram group already? Uh, I, I do have a Telegram group, but I'm setting up sort of a separate brand and an entity uh -huh. um, that has, uh -huh. has yet to be announced. So your your listeners okay. are, are are getting the the first public oh. reference to it. Wow! Breaking news. Okay. Well, that's great. I, I hope uh, your community will have its own token and <laughs> I'll participate in the pre-sale and to the moon. Yes. Uh, so thanks uh, to everyone for uh, listening to this episode. Uh, see you next week with another exciting uh, conversation around data and maybe also health. And uh, also thanks to Diksha and Peter who are helping with the production, editing, content, everything around the podcast. And as always, Ocean Protocol. Bye everyone and see you soon.